0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network.
1: Today on Government Matters, the Department of Energy is accelerating the clean energy revolution by awarding prizes to incentivize innovation, offering more than $2 million to simplify home electrification. Then we're taking a look at some of the most transformative technology in manufacturing, from predicting when machines will need maintenance to 3D printed organs. We explore the innovations that will have the biggest impact this year. And amid record numbers of migrants arriving at the Southern border, the Biden administration is issuing new enforcement rules. We discuss how they'll work and the anticipated impact. Government Matters starts right now.
0: From Washington DC and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges.
1: This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gergis. The Department of Energy's American-Made program drives innovation through prize challenges, offering millions of dollars in funding for clean energy solutions. Wyatt Merrill is a technology manager in the department's Building Technologies office. Wyatt, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So explain how the American Made program works and this different funding model.
2: Sure. So the American Made program has been around since 2018. They have funded dozens of prizes across different technology areas and different offices uh, over that time. And uh, the idea with the funding model for a prize is uh, as opposed to like a grant or, or a cooperative research agreement, which might be more typical for our for, for my office, um, we. Are looking for certain outcomes, and we award those outcomes at the end of the innovation process. So, it's a lot lower risk uh, on the government side because we're only awarding the outcomes that, that we're looking for when we go into to developing a prize. But it also provides a lot of flexibility for the uh, competitors of the prize to you know work flexibly on you know how they want to innovate. Right. So when we do. A typical cooperative agreement would be, you know, with stage gates and milestones and all these deliverables along the way. That's all contractually obligated. And in the, in, instead, with a prize, you can really approach it pretty flexibly as a as a competitor. And then, when you get the funds at the end, you can use them however you want. Um, and so, there's there's that. Uh, Flexibility built built right in, and a lot lower risk, as I said, uh, on on the government side.
1: So let's talk specifics. You're running um, a prize called the Equitable and Affordable Solutions to Electrification. It's called the Easy Prize. Yep. Um, what solutions are you
2: looking for? So, there we're not extremely prescriptive about which technologies, but the but the real goal here is to uh, promote technologies and develop uh, innovations that make it easier, as the as the name of the prize implies, for. Uh, homeowners who are ready to make the switch to electrify their home to do so and so we're especially targeting homes that uh, might have a trickier time with the, with the current uh, uh, market and, and for electrification so you know you can go out right now and you can spend a certain amount of money to electrify your home if, if you have those that that those upfront costs taken care of as a homeowner but there uh, there's an affordability aspect here for the prize where we want to drive down costs of electrification and we also want to target specific dwellings that that um, are, are less served by by the current market for electrification so we're looking at uh, things like multifamily housing um, we're looking at things like mobile homes we're looking at older construction colder climate homes things like that
1: and what's what are the benefits of electrification
2: yeah so this is really kind of um, a, a handshake in a way with uh, some broader administration priorities to decarbonize the supply of electricity right so you probably heard you know uh solar and and wind as and and nuclear as as uh renewable or 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 net zero options for providing electricity on the demand side in in the buildings uh we we need to uh get the direct emissions from uh fuel combustion out of homes in order to meet the uh economy-wide decarbonization goals that the administration has set and so um the, the the goal there is uh to, to provide more efficient appliances. So first of all, these electric appliances or electric furnaces are on the order of you know, three times more efficient um, in, in how they operate. Um, and then on top of that, you're, you're uh, providing that electricity on the, on the supply side uh, based on our current trajectory with uh, clean, renewable energy, uh, and, and uh, it, it's uh, beneficial uh, to, to our broader, longer-term uh, decarbonization uh, objectives.
1: Give me a little bit more information on the mechanics of the prize, like who can enter, how do you find out about it, what's the process?
2: Yeah, so there there are uh, eligibility requirements that um, are detailed in, in our in our prize document, and I would uh, encourage anybody who's interested to check out our, our website. Um, uh, but we are targeting American businesses, uh, and there uh, uh, there's a, a broad sort of uh, applicability here, so it could be Utilities partnering with uh, uh, equipment manufacturers, it, c- it could be uh, you know, um, uh, efficiency programs and nonprofits working with innovators to, to, uh, to, to deliver a, a whole home uh, approach to uh, making electrification easier. Uh, and so as far as the, the specifics of the prize, we have two phases. The first phase is really just a, a simple concept paper where you were asking people to bring good ideas to the table. And if you, if you advance from that phase to the second phase, you'll receive a technical assistance voucher to work with our national labs or to work with the network of uh, what we call connectors in the American-Made Challenge Network. Um, and, and through this, uh, there'll be a pilot demonstration activity uh, where you'll actually put the, the technologies that are proposed in the concept paper into work and, and see them uh, in operation. Um, and, and that's where we'll make our bigger award uh, of, of up to a million dollars for first place
1: the your uh, organization runs a solar prize every year give me an idea of some of the innovations that you're looking for some of the things that have come out of that prize over the years
2: so the solar prize i think is the the longest running prize Um, and this is in uh, so i'm in the building's office this is part of the solar office um, so, so my office doesn't uh, specifically work on the Solar Prize. We've actually only run uh, a couple of prizes to date in, in my office, but we're, we're certainly ramping up those activities uh, as the American Made Network uh, grows and, and uh, we, we have more and more success stories. But the Solar Prize um, has has funded. I, I mean, it's got to be dozens of innovations at this point over I think six years of of, of prizes. Um, and and they're you know they're always looking for efficiency gains, um, but they're also looking for I think uh, uh, you know. Ease of installation and, and aesthetic uh, uh, preferences for consumers to drive adoption of those clean technologies, um, and, and they, they've been quite successful with that.
1: And there is a, very quickly there's a there's a robot prize for um, installing. Uh, there was something that the robots were installing. <laughs> yeah. So
2: the, the the most recent prize that's actually concluded at this point uh, that came out of the buildings office where I work uh, was to. Uh, use robotics to address some of the harder-to-insulate parts of the home and, and duct work and things of that nature, uh, where you actually have things like uh, you know, small drones going up into the duct work and, and doing, uh, you know, f- uh, sealing those, those leaky uh, parts of, of the home uh, that can really provide a big benefit for efficiency for consumers.
1: All right, Wyatt, thanks for coming in. Nice to talk to you.
2: Nice to be here. Thank you.
1: Coming up next on Government Matters, some of the biggest technologies transforming manufacturing over the next year. We'll be right back. major focus of the current administration is revitalizing American manufacturing. Over the last two years, billions of dollars have been set aside to support the industry. And new technologies have the potential to revolutionize the way things are made. Praveena Raghavan is the director of the Manufacturing Extension Partnership at NIST, which is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Pravina, welcome to the program.
3: Well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited
1: to be here. So just start by telling us what is the Manufacturing Extension Partnership? It's a great question. So we have
3: 1,400 experts across the United States. We have a center in every state, 51 and Puerto Rico. And what we do is help manufacturers uh, actually learn uh, new technologies, but also grow, find efficiencies, and uh, find domestic suppliers here in the United States. Our entire mission is to strengthen and empower manufacturers, and we've helped over millions of manufacturers every day in the last 30 years of this program.
1: Well, let's talk about some of those new uh, technologies that you're supporting. 3D printing is really an exciting area of manufacturing and the, and the big buzz is around printing body organs. So where are we on that? What does the future hold?
3: I think the future is very bright. Uh, and for people who don't know what 3D printing is, it's just printing an object Uh, outside of a a specialized printer that uses materials. um, And you have a 3D object. So something instead of using your paper printer, which only gives you a 2D object, you get a 3D object. And uh, what's interesting about printing organs is you can make valve replacements, uh, put in new body parts. It's still in its infancy. Uh, It's not there yet. We need to get through testing and standards. And at NIST, that's what we're doing right now. Um, We're also working with the FDA, the efficacy. Uh, to ensure that it happens. And the reality is we're doing active research right now. It's an active research phase. They are printing out. We went and actually did a test case on tissue uh, revitalization, and we're able to do it through a 3D printer. which means think about the cost of surgeries going down, but also really how we can help Americans, um, you know, get vital body parts quicker. Um, If you're on the organ donor list, you know that it takes time. And so this is actually to help get more Americans healthy quickly.
1: And an area that you say can have a really big impact is around predictive maintenance. Explain how that works.
3: Sure, so um, it's it's called prognostic health management. We like fancy words in manufacturing, but if you wanna think about it, it's taking the temperature and doing an annual physical of your uh, manufacturing facility. Why this is important is about sensors, actually having sensors that can actually understand what's going on, looking at the data, and understanding how their production line is going, uh, and make, real time connection so that manufacturers can actually save money, but also bring down the cost of their products and get more efficient in their line. And it's just by putting a sensor as we develop better, better sensors you have, if you think about it, you walk with a sensor in your your phone today, uh, you're able to actually monitor your body function. So we can do that for a production line. And when you can do that, you can actually correct problems and also um, help with what we would call the workforce problem because you might not have that many people to check those machines, but now the sensors are doing it for it. And the data actually tells you what's going on so that you can make corrections in real time and not have recalls and other things that affect the public.
1: And I was gonna ask, you know, since those sensors are becoming cheaper and more widely available and predictive maintenance is implemented more widely, what economic impact does that ultimately have?
3: I think the economic impact is that we can help grow manufacturers. Uh, 98% of manufacturers are small. That's what we tend to, that's our bailiwick. And just so you know, what small means is people with less than 500 employees. And the ability to use these sensors to do predictive maintenance and to make sure the line is in progress and doing what it's supposed to do actually allows for less bodies, which is right now we have an entire workforce shortage. Every industry does, including manufacturing but now how do we make sure that we're getting the, the maintenance done quickly is based on these sensors. And so the economic impact is that we can get goods quicker, faster out, and if they're here in the domestic supply chain, they can actually get to the public quicker. Um, last year alone, we helped do $18.8 billion of sales for manufacturers. So these types of uh, technology modifications ensure that manufacturers are getting what they need at the right time and actually real-time inventory getting out uh to the public
1: and the you know you've written about supply chain visibility in the manufacturing Mm -hmm. process so tell us why that's important how that's achieved
3: yeah so it's interesting um supply chain was never thought about until five five years ago if you ask the word supply chain people didn't know what it is but the visibility of understanding where your goods come from and actually how it gets from point a to b Um, if you. I just recently bought a home. I can't create a dishwasher, but what does that mean? Right, why why can't we figure out how to get a dishwasher to me um, in Maryland? And the reason is because we don't actually know where all the goods are from the supply chain and who is actually in that chain to put the goods together and get it to me. using smart manufacturing allows us to be able to do that quickly and so if there are gaps or if something a piece of part isn't there we can actually go find another supplier to push that into the network uh into the actual final product because most people don't realize is that you may buy your thing from whatever company you buy your you uh dishwasher or refrigerator or whatever but they're not actually manufacturing it. They get their pieces from component pieces and not being able to tell in the visibility of where it's going with sensors and also smart manufacturing. You can actually tell what's going on from your down supplier, from the person who's putting the door handle on the dishwasher, all the way to the person who's actually putting it together. And that kind of data is very empowering because it allows us to figure out where those gaps and eliminate these long wait times that we've been seeing along with the supply chain.
1: And finally, Praveena, looking at the long term, you know, what are the advances that you're most excited about?
3: Well, I do wanna say 3D printing an organ tissue donor is amazing. I mean, to be able to affect someone's health and actually help them do, you know, to live a long life. Um, And really the future of manufacturing is just about taking things that we see every day and making it more efficient and getting goods to people, whether it's cheese, whether it's planes, um, you know, using smart manufacturing and also sensors just the, is the ability to actually get people what they want when they need it. But doing it here in the United States and supporting small manufacturers in that supply chain is very critical for us because um, I think we all saw it and felt it during COVID, If you couldn't get toilet paper that was a bad thing but now we will be able to tell you why we can't get it and make sure you do have it on the shelves on time.
1: All right Praveena nice to talk to you thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you thank you for having me. Straight ahead on Government Matters with record numbers of migrants arriving at the southern border DHS is implementing new policies to deter illegal immigration. We discuss how they'll work and who will be implementing them. We'll be right back. can't stop people from making the journey but we can require them to come here that they come here in an orderly way under U.S. law that's President Biden talking about the major changes he recently announced to stop the record surge of migrants crossing into the country illegally David Beer is the associate director of immigration studies at the Cato Institute David welcome to the program thanks for having me So one of the changes um, that the president announced is allowing humanitarian exceptions to Title 42. Um, and, And that does not require a nonprofit to be involved. Title 42 is a public health law. Remind us first how that works at the border.
4: Right. So in March of 2020, the Centers for Disease Control promulgated an order that stated that the Department of Homeland Security could expel people who cross the border into the United States legally or illegally and the way that's worked at the border is if someone crosses illegally they're immediately turned back uh, and sent back into Mexico Uh, at ports of entry and legal crossing points they are just blocked from being able to access the application to apply for asylum at those places.
1: So let's talk about the humanitarian exception. How was that working? How does that work now or supposedly work?
4: Right. So under the original version of the Title 42 order uh, under the Trump administration, there really were no, almost no humanitarian exceptions whatsoever. No one could come to the country legally and request asylum at a legal crossing point. Uh, over the summer, the, the Biden administration used its authority in the, the order from the Centers for Disease Control to create humanitarian exceptions. And that process worked through nonprofit organizations at the border. They would refer an individual to be able to cross uh, legally and, and schedule an appointment to apply for an exception to Title 42 and ultimately apply for asylum in the United States. That slowly ramped up. And now this new order from the president is to allow anyone who's in Mexico, who's coming to the US border, to schedule an appointment through a phone app, CBP1, which is the, the name of the phone app, and you'd be able to schedule an appointment to uh, request a sign legally at a port of entry along the US-Mexico border.
1: DHS is also creating a sponsorship program. This would be for Venezuelans, for Cubans, for Haitians and Nicaraguans. Why those people in particular?
4: Well, they account for the majority of the people who are not being expelled under Title 42 because Mexico until this point had refused to accept them back. As part of the deal with Mexico to accept those nationalities back as, 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 as people being expelled at the border, uh, they have agreed to take in legally uh, 30,000 a month from those countries. And so they would be able to apply. Uh, it's an online application uh, that they would be able to then seek uh, safety in the United States by flying directly to, the, to uh, an airport in the interior of the United States rather than coming to the U.S.-Mexico border and trying to request asylum that way. Of course, they would also need a sponsor in the United States who has legal status Uh, in this country who could have the financial wherewithal to support them uh, during their stay. Of course, they also receive a work permit as part of the deal, so hopefully they would also then become self-sufficient over over the course of time.
1: So, David, do you think these changes are really going to make a, a positive impact on the number of people crossing illegally at the southern
4: border? oh it's going to make a huge difference and we already know this we've had multiple sort of test runs with these uh, these types of programs the the administration has sort of piloted them on a smaller basis over the course of uh, the last year Uh, starting with ukrainians who were coming to the border after the russian invasion we had tens of thousands showing up in the spring at the u.s mexico border and in response they created a program a sponsorship program that allowed uh, U.S. residents to sponsor uh, Ukrainians to fly f- directly from Europe so they don't have to go to the U.S.-Mexico border. The number of Ukrainians coming to the border fell by 98% after that decision uh, was made. Uh, we've had a similar experiment uh, in October uh, with Venezuelans. They created a, a sponsorship program for them in October. and. Combined it with the enforcement of Title 42 against Venezuelans sending them back to Mexico. That led to an almost 90% reduction in the number of Venezuelans traveling to the United States. And uh, the majority of Venezuelans now are entering the country legally as a consequence of that decision. And the last experiment was with the CBP-1 app in the process for applying uh, for asylum at ports of entry. They rolled that out, initially targeting Haitians, uh, who, as you may remember, last year were coming illegally in great numbers. There was the whole encampment at the border and Border Patrol chasing them with horses and all of that chaos. That's all gone away as a result of the decision uh, made over the summer to admit them and process them legally at ports of entry.
1: You know, David, as with everything, the hard part is going to be implementing all of this. What are your thoughts on that?
4: well of course the the administration has dedicated significant resources to making these processes work so far so the venezuelan process they are processing people for the sponsorship program rather quickly same for ukrainians Uh, it's a matter of weeks when normally when you're talking about the immigration system you're talking about years uh, for a for a process to come to this country so they're trying to make it work so far it has uh, whether they continue to, to go down the, the, the path that they have been going down, it's really up to them. Are they? W- is this a priority for the administration? I think it is, so I'm hopeful, uh, but y- you're asking the right question. We, we don't know because we, it's too early to say whether the administration is dedicating the resources necessary to process people legally. And we legally. will find
1: out, and yeah. thank you so much for being on the program. Uh, nice to talk to you.
4: Of course, thank you.
1: Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. You can get a preview and a recap of each of our programs when you sign up for our daily newsletters. And you can sign up for our email list on the homepage. That's the latest from Washington join me weeknights at 8 and 10 30 on wjla 24 7 news and sunday mornings at ten thirty on 7 news to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government thanks for watching i'm mimi gergis
0: stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor hughes network systems
1: i'm here with tony bardo assistant vice president for government solutions at hughes Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government?
5: What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional. Uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, and satellite, of course.
1: Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen Five because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service.
5: It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in two thousand and sixteen, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen Four, that are called high-throughput satellites, and these are satellite services that took satellite